Welcome in to Rick and Bubba University, the podcast. We are thankful that you have taken time to be with us here today. And Bubba, today we'll talk about a topic that is on everyone's mind, and that is the ongoing effort uh, to get the vaccine for COVID-19 to enough people in our country that hopefully and prayfully we can get to the other side of this pandemic. Rick, we've all been affected by this. Uh, You've had it. I've had it. Dr. Sag has had it. Uh, Dr. Michael Sag is with us, Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at UAB, and uh, he's a pretty smart guy, Rick, and he's going to educate us on the very latest on COVID-19. Dr. Sag, welcome to Rick and Bubba University, the podcast. Yeah, it's great to be with you guys. Uh, you know, you you are you know well known, world renowned, involving research uh, with HIV and AIDS, and uh, of course, thank you for your work. Uh, you know, at one time we wondered would we ever be able to give people uh, any quality of life involving that horrible uh, disease, and we have been. Research uh, has gone forward, and now it's not a death sentence anymore. And and praise the Lord for that. But uh, talking about this, uh, you know, when you have a novel virus. Uh, there's a reason we're putting that name in front of it because that means we've never really dealt with it before, and we have some indications of what it may or may not do based on – and we use football analogies, Dr. Sag, as you know on the program. Uh, We knew what conference that it lived in, but we didn't know the specific team. Um, And so tell us a little bit – I think we do have some good news, right, involving these vaccines. They seem to be doing a pretty good job. Yeah, they really are. And if let me – jump back to HIV for a minute, because I think it's a prelude to this. A lot of the reason we have a vaccine right now, and a lot of the reason we have tests and we have treatments all within the matter of a year, just think about that for a second, uh, is because of the research that preceded it over 30 to 40 years in virology, HIV probably chief among them, but hepatitis C and respiratory syncytia virus, I could go on. But the fact is the, the work that had been done prepared us to respond in the way that we have. And so while it has been horrific, no doubt about it, things could have been a hundred times worse if we didn't have this to go from. And to pick up on HIV again, remember 1981, it was first described. We didn't even have a, a known what caused it till 1983 and didn't have a test until 1985 and a treatment until 1987. So imagine if that's what we were dealing with yet, and we still don't have an HIV vaccine. So all the work that had been done in developing treatments and vaccines or attempts at vaccines in that field and some others got us into the position where we are right now. And to me, that's really exciting. Doctor, uh, tell us, uh, now that we're down the road from the vaccines actually being put in people's arms, are, are we still satisfied that it is safe and effective? What is the very latest that you're seeing from all this? Well, that's a critical question. Let's uh, look at some basics here. We know that the original uh, virus, we'll call that wild type. That's what we call it in the, in the field of, of virology. Wild type means the original virus with no mutations. Right. The original vaccines were developed, of course, against that particular strain. But like all viruses, they mutate. They mutate every day. Why? Because there's billions of viruses produced a day when somebody gets infected with a virus. It doesn't, it's hard to comprehend that, but that's true. And every now and then they'll make a mistake and a variant will emerge. We've kind of expected that. So as these variants have emerged, those that have a selective advantage of growth. So think back to Charles Darwin, survival of the fittest. They outgrow the wild type 
and become the predominant species. And that's what we're seeing now. To get to your question, fortunately, so far, the original vaccines, the Pfizer, the Moderna, um, even the J&J uh, vaccine that will probably be approved next week in the United States, that's in late February, um, we will be finding that those vaccines still have activity against these variants so far. Uh, so that's good news. Yeah, that was the next question I was going to ask. Do we think it can hold up against the variants? And you say right now, and we're early in that, we think so. It looks like they're having some some effect. Dr. Sag, what is, uh, if, how long right now are the antibodies or our defense system working against this, say for people who have had it or people who have been vaccinated? What's the What's the latest on that? Well, let's start with the three of us. We've each had the infection. It's pretty horrific, at least for me. And uh, the immune system responds. And in fact, the immune system response is what causes the bad symptoms. It's that fighting. So uh, the immunity probably lasts at least a year, although we've had some cases of people with a clear second infection uh, pop in about six months, seven months afterwards. But as a rule, uh, we we believe that it lasts around a year. And for the vaccine, our anticipation is that it's going to last at least a year as well. The things that could change that, as we've already said, the variants, maybe it'll shift enough to where the uh, vaccine quite work, won't quite work as well. Think about influenza, where we get a shot that's a little mm-hmm. bit different every year. Uh, we'll have to just wait and see how that emerges. But right now, one year seems like a good number. Can you clarify this for for me, too? And I know a lot of other people, I think there's some confusion and I don't fully understand it either. Once you have it or once you're vaccinated, you have antibodies in your system and you can be tested for that. You know if you have the antibodies, but at some point in time, the antibodies will fall off. Does that mean you're unprotected at that point or does that just mean you have not been exposed lately to it? Uh, Well, it means that your body has stopped producing them in large numbers, but the cells, the factories in our body that produce right. the antibody are still there. Okay. And you prime them, you give them another stimulus and boom, they're going to go. So for the three of us, we go in to get our vaccine. We're going to respond very differently than somebody who never had it before. So that's the fancy term for that is anamnestic anamnestic response. It means that our body has seen this thing before and it's on it. And the memory cells, the cells that have seen this before, rise to the occasion very quickly and then immediately start producing antibody. And it doesn't take the usual 12 to 14 days like it would in most people who'd never had the infection. So that is why we were hearing stories about someone who had had the virus and they, one of the stories I read, they documented two people. One had basically gone back into total isolation, and their, their antibodies fell off after about six months, where the other case was somebody who worked in a COVID ward as a nurse, and they saw their antibodies stay high well over a year. And, and that's because they're being exposed to it, right, and their body's responding to it. That, that could be one uh, readily... A plausible explanation. Absolutely. But it also, there's variability person to person. So right. it could be that the per, the first person, just their immunity just wasn't quite as strong. Maybe they didn't have as bad an illness up front uh, that stimulated that. Everybody, our immune systems are, are just as unique as we are as people. Right. So 
that's going to be a little bit variable. But on average, I would say that it's going to last about a year. And a quick comment about checking antibodies. In the community, there are antibody tests, as you alluded to, but they're not so reliable. The ones that I trust are the ones that are done in the research labs from colleagues of mine. That's how I've been getting my blood tested as part of a research study. But the, the ones that are available commercially are kind of variable mm-hmm. and i'm not sure as trustworthy as uh some of the others all right on that we'll come back we'll talk more we're, we're having a conversation with dr michael sag director of the division of infectious diseases at uab about our ongoing battle with this pandemic and the, the vaccines and we'll come back and talk a little bit about some of the testing as we continue to walk through this when rick and bubba university the podcast continues all right, so we're having our conversation with Dr. Michael Sag of uh, the director of the, of the Division of Infectious Diseases at UAB. So when we were going into this this last break, we talked a bit about some of the antibodies test. Now you are saying what, which is what I had been hearing from my own doctor that he thinks that if you've had the disease or the vaccine, he was thinking anywhere from six months to a year versus at first when they were saying, oh, ninety days, ninety days is all it is. He said, no, we're, we're seeing T-cells with people. It's going to be more than 90 days in most every case. Now, it may not be a year with everybody, but but he was thinking it could be as much as a year, and you've kind of confirmed that that's what we're thinking now, which is helpful. So if I'm someone who has the antibodies, and, and right now I do, should I be vaccinated? Should I take the vaccine, or should I wait till I'm getting more toward the end of that time? Uh, now, right now, I'm not. It's not available to me yet, but it, it, it's going to be. So, what what would be your advice there? The current advice is for everybody who's had the infection to wait about 90 days, three months after their first after their original infection, and then go ahead and get the vaccine. So, I had my disease back in March. I got the vaccine in December, and that's I think a good time period to to wait. Since this is Rick and Bubba University, let's dig a little bit deeper into okay. some of the science. So we mentioned, you mentioned T cells quickly, and I think that's important. So to dig into this a little bit, there are two types of immune system cells at play here, T cells and B cells. The B cells are the ones that make the antibody, and we've talked a lot about that. But as you mentioned, those T cells are also very important, and that's a whole different type of immunity. It's kind of hard to measure. You can't just do a commercial test, but they're there, and they're important at fighting viral infections. So it's not just the B cells and the antibody, it's the T cells. And all of that is very important for our protection. So it's a little bit more deep, that's good news, uh, than just the antibody and the B cells alone. Dr. Sag, if uh, there's a window, I guess, of the human, see how I can phrase this, uh, of the human body, that viruses can affect because there's things outside that window or a door frame. Let's look at it that way. You can walk through that, that don't affect us. Some that affect animals, some that affect plants, but it doesn't affect humans. This disease is in that window. Now, is it possible that it will mutate outside of the window or the door frame so that it basically won't harm us anymore? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it really strikes right at the heart of this whole pandemic. We started off our conversation calling it a novel, novel coronavirus, that means new. And it is new for us, but it's been in the animal community for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. It just wasn't inside our window. It didn't come in our door because whatever reason, we were not susceptible. 
But something happened in the animal kingdom. The, the reservoir for these viruses are bats. They're hugely populated with all kinds of coronaviruses. The vast majority don't affect us at all. But a little bit of a change, a little bit of a mutant mutation causes a variant that suddenly gets in the window, gets in the door right. to infect us. And that's precisely what happened to start this pandemic. Well, and, and I wanted to ask you about that, too. I had it on the list, and maybe you don't want to, to go into that. Do you, do you still feel like that it was a natural mutation that got in the window, or was it possibly manipulated at some point, either, well, either intentionally or accidentally? I'm really glad you asked the question, Bubba, because that is something that's out there, so let's address it. Um, is it possible that at this Wuhan Institute in China that some nefarious person manipulated the genetics of the, of the virus and made it infectious for humans? Yes, that is possible. But we don't need that explanation at all because viruses mutate all the time to become infectious for humans. And the data that we've seen so far shows that this is a natural evolution of known coronaviruses. It's not a mystery. It, it's totally explained by what we expect viruses to do. The fancy term, going back to us being a university, for viruses or bacteria or parasites that come from the animal community into humans, come in that window, is called a zoonosis. It comes from animals into humans. Happens all the time. So we don't need to let our imagination go wild and put our finger on Wuhan or the Wuhan Institute. This makes sense. And it was anticipated going back to SARS-1 in 2003 that there could be another mutation. And that's exactly what happened. So, Doc, let me ask you this about this, this virus and the, the testing for it. it. It seems like the testing hasn't, frankly, been all that reliable. And, and I can give you cases within personal stories that we have in our own workplace. We had a lot of guys here get work, get sick at work because one of the wives, uh, uh, Speedy's wife, had every symptom. All these symptoms were just screaming coronavirus. But then she gets tested, and it's negative. It's, it shows that she does not have it. She gets tested for the flu, negative. Everything she was tested for came back negative, but her symptoms seemed pretty straightforward, but then Speedy was like, well, they keep testing her and it's coming back negative, so I guess I'll come to work. Well, then then, then guess who gets it? Speedy has it. Bubba gets yeah. it. Uh, Helms gets it. <laughs> because she did have – She then they tested her for the antibodies, and guess what? She had them. So it seems like – and then you got into the – I know that what I was told when I had it, and you tell me if you agree with this, the doctor that, that uh, Bubba and I have, who who's, does a great job, he said, I know this is going to frustrate you because you're wanting to get back to work. I'm going to let you sit for a few days before I even test you because I'd been exposed by my son. He said, then I'm going to do the long-term test. I'm not going to do the rapid test. Mm -hmm. And yet that's going to frustrate you even more because you, yeah. you, you want to know. <laughs> but I'm trying to get an accurate test. To, so you know for sure whether you have it or not. And he did the, 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 the long-term test, and I came back in the middle of the show as positive. And, and it, it seemed like that he did not have much faith in some of the testing. Uh, and, and he made that pretty clear. What do you say to our testing accuracy? 
Well, I love this question as well. No test is perfect, not a single one of the tests that we do. And as doctors, as providers, we need to know the, the bounds of those tests and where they're strong and where they're weak and what the limitations are. And your story of, of the wife who had symptoms not testing positive rings very true with me. The test is not 100%. Sensitivity means picking up an infection when it's there and not missing it. Specificity means picking up an, the fact that someone doesn't have the test but still could test positive. So that's a false positive. What we really want in this situation is a test that's very sensitive, that's not going to miss a case. Right. And so the sensitivity of these tests, especially the long one, as you refer to the PCR, is pretty darn good. It's 98, 99%, but it's not perfect. Right. Why? First off, it could be how the, how the sample was collected. Yeah. If a swab just sort of danced on the outer portion of the nose, you're going to miss it, right? Or if it goes real deep, you're going to pick up more. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the test itself may have inhibitors, and I don't want to go into all the details of that, but if there's something that contaminated the material in the, in the vial or something from the person's nose that blocks the reaction, then the test is going to be falsely negative and you're going to miss it. At the end of the day, the way I practice medicine, sounds like your doc too, is that if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, flies like a duck, it's a duck. Right. I don't care what the test says, right? <laughs> right. So you got you got to treat it that way. At the end of the day, this is really important. The practice of medicine is simply common sense layered on a foundation of science. It's that. That's it. And everything should make sense. So if somebody's got symptoms of COVID, and it's pretty obvious in your middle of a pandemic. I sort of don't care what the test says. Right. I'm going to say that person's positive, And I think that's what got missed here. The tests are really good. And I'm glad we have them. They're just not perfect. The long test is far superior to that rapid test. It, it can miss up to 30% of the cases. I will right, we'll come back. We'll continue our conversation with Dr. Michael Sack. Thank you for taking time with us. Uh, when Rick and Bubba University, the podcast continues. All right. So let's talk about this, Bubba. Uh, if you heard of, of ladder, you and I've talked about this, so you already know, but, but a lot of people out there may be thinking to themselves, uh, all right, uh, I need to get life insurance and you and I have talked about this often. Don't complicate it. Term is usually the way to go. Yeah. Uh, now if you want to do something else, that's between, between, between you and your insurance provider, but the term is what's important. If you and I were to pass away before our wives, we want our wives to receive this amount of money so right. that they are taken care of. So, um, so if you're talking about, you know, making a good decision on that, I believe that that ladder can, can really help you out. Okay. Because, um, what you want to do when you're dealing with the folks at ladder is in just a few minutes on a phone, a laptop, whatever, they can get with you in just a few minutes and, and they can let you know that just a little bit a month on term life insurance, it's not a lot. But what you want is you want somebody to help you kind of weed through this and get down to it and get down to it quick because uh, we all are willing to pay a little bit a month to protect the ones that we love. So here's where Ladder can help you. They make it extremely fast and easy to get covered. In just a few minutes, uh, they, they get these algorithms working in real time, and they find out if they can get you approved instantly. There's no hidden fees, so don't worry about that. You can cancel any time. And since life insurance costs – 
more as we age, right? We know this, Bubba, because we were getting it set up where if we went, if we, you ever notice when we did it, we were like, okay, this, I want to be sure if we die young. People don't say that about you and me anymore. No, I noticed. And it gets tougher <laughs> as we age. So, so why don't you check out Ladder today and see if they can get you instantly approved? Go to ladderlife.com slash Rick Bubba. That's ladderlife.com slash Rick Bubba. L A D D E R life.com slash Rick Bubba. And, uh, and they can help you and help you quickly. All right. So we're here on Rick and Bubba University, the podcast. Uh, we, we are talking with Dr. Michael Sag, and we're trying to unpack all things coronavirus. And uh, this is his area of expertise. He's the director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at uh, world renowned UAB. So, uh, Bubba, other questions? Yeah. And, and Dr. Sag, I want to thank you too because. We we really want to get to the truth in this, and there's been so much confusion. There's been political. There's been accusations of politics in it, and somewhere in there, there's the truth. And we're really trying to get to that and and cut through this. And you're helping us a lot with this. L- let me ask you this because so many people are are asking me this, and I don't always have a good answer for them other than just what I would call the the, the common horse sense logic to it. How can this virus attack someone and one person have a runny nose and another person ends up in the hospital on a ventilator and eventually loses their life? It's just such a wide range. What causes the difference in that? What what are we looking at? What do you see evolving out of the data that's being reported? Well, I think we, again, have learned a lot. So let me break it down a little bit. The first thing that's important is a term we call inoculum. That's how much of a whiff of the virus did you get? If you're only exposed to a little bit of the virus, just happen it in passing, then your your course of infection is likely to be mild. You're not likely to get as sick. And that kind of makes common sense. If you happen to get a hefty dose, right? You're sitting next to somebody at a crowded bar. They're infected. They're spewing out lots of virus. Nobody's wearing a mask and you're with them for 15 or 20 minutes and you're breathing this stuff in. Or in my case, riding in a car with my son for 20 hours, Mm -hmm. unbeknownst to us, right? Mm -hmm. Closed windows last March. Right. Then I got a lot of virus and I got pretty sick. So that's the first thing. The second thing is how our immune systems react to the virus. So what we have learned is that there's a substance that T cells, we talked about those, produce when it gets infected with a virus, and that's called interferon. And if our bodies are working well, then that interferon spikes early and brings the virus under control. People who get that type of response do well. Mm-hmm. People who have a delayed interferon response are the ones who do very poorly. Why somebody responds that way and somebody doesn't, I can't tell you. But I will tell you this, that for everybody listening, this is very important. We've learned that if somebody goes to their doctor's office early or a a stand-up urgent care center, they get diagnosed on, say, day two, and somebody gives them steroids right off the bat, that steroid depresses the interferon response, and those folks do much worse than they would have done Mm. had they not gotten the steroids. Steroids later in the course of illness, interestingly, a little bit ironically, are important because that's when a different part of the immune system is responding, right? right. But early on, it's that interferon response. So it's, it's a complicated answer, but the bottom line is our immune systems respond differently. People, frankly, who are older, overweight, have diabetes, 
uh, or other immune system disease typically do worse with the infection. I can't tell you exactly why, but my bet is that that interferon response early on is not as robust as it needed to be. Yeah, I, we had a friend who had it too, and, and he got the steroids. And he said the problem he had with the steroids, and we've all taken them before when you need to get back to work and you've got some cold or some virus. And then, you know, he said it gave me a false sensation that I was better than I was. And I went out to my farm and started doing physical things because I was bored out of my mind. And he said, and I took a huge dive after that because I was under a false sensation that I was better off than I was. So was that a problem too with the steroids too early? Yeah, that can be. So all of that together, it's again, to break it down in the first seven to eight days, steroids as a rule are, are, are no good because they interfere. Later, what happens is the virus becomes long gone by day 10 on ordinary situation, but people remain sick for days, maybe weeks afterwards in the ICU. And in those situations, we found that steroids actually help. Why? Because at that point, we aren't fighting the virus like interferon would have. It's an immune system that's gone haywire. Mm -hmm. It's gone totally crazy. That also happens more commonly in older folks. It happens more commonly in folks who are overweight or have diabetes. So in that situation, we're watching for that and trying to intervene earlier with monoclonal therapy and some other things, which I can get into if you'd like, but well, there's treatments that we have. Well, we want to talk about the famous hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> All right, this hydroxychloroquine thing, uh, it did get politicized, which we don't need that in science. You know, science should, once science get, gets politicized, it gets awkward. So there's all sorts of, of information that hydroxychloroquine uh, was demonized because it was cheap and it's been around and you have the old people saying, well, it's all about money. Then it got political because Donald Trump liked it and the anti-Trump people, you know, thought it can't be good because he likes it. Uh, and then the CDC lately seems to have kind of changed their mind on it a little bit on it being used. Then there's the, Hey, we've seen the countries that use hydroxychloroquine on a regular basis. They seem to do better than the ones that don't. What, what, what treatments are we seeing that and let's just take everything out of it. The treatments mm -hmm. that you and your expertise seem to help and shorten it or lessen the severity, and then the, the things that you don't think are all that effective. Okay. With things that work, clearly, if somebody gets infected and they get symptoms and they get diagnosed in the first couple of days of symptoms, monoclonal antibodies work extraordinarily well, and we're using a boatload of that now. Our government has already paid for it. They gave the companies upfront money to produce it. It's available to us. So anybody who's in those categories, I said, older, overweight, diabetes, et cetera, come in as soon as you can after you get your diagnosis, and this will shorten the course and keep you out of the ICU. At UAB, just in the month of January, we treated over 550 people at high risk for being in the hospital, and only 15 people got admitted. It That's works great. extraordinarily well. Very, very positive. And what are so some names? Tell us, tell us about what that is yeah, what exactly is that? and how that okay, was developed. Okay. Yeah. So this, this, ironically, is the same treatment Donald Trump got. Right. He did not get hydroxychloroquine, right? Right. He didn't get the medicine he was touting. He got monoclonal antibody and got another drug called remdesivir. Right. And he also got some steroids later. But, the, but the, he got the remdesivir and monoclonal antibody. What it is, it's basically antibody that we talked about earlier in response to a vaccine. Right. This is specific antibody produced in a laboratory 
at high quantities and basically gets the immunity to people before their body has a chance to produce it. So it usually takes 14 days or so after a vaccine or after exposure for antibody to get to high enough levels. We give it to people right away and it takes the infection right out for the most part. So that's that's what monoclonal antibody is. It's a natural immune product that we just give. It's ridiculously safe. Um, there's very few side effects and it works like gangbusters. Now, is this given, I'm sorry, is this given by IV? Is is this the infusion centers we hear about? And and the reason I want to ask that is because I was supposed to get that and my, I was sick over Christmas and we Mm -hmm. ran into a problem with Christmas and holidays and all that. And it takes about an hour to get this in an IV, I understand. And then about an hour to watch you after that. And it's really not in that format. It really doesn't fit the doctor's office and it really doesn't fit the hospital. And there was a problem getting enough of it out, although it was highly effective. Yeah, we had a bunch of it ready to go, but not infusion centers. Tell us about that. Yeah, so we fought through that and we're we're where we need to be now. And unfortunately, Bubba, you were about a week and a half too Mm. early Yeah, because by the 1st of January, our hospital, but I think most hospitals in Birmingham and all throughout the state now have converted areas within the hospital into infusion centers and we're giving up to 16 treating up to 16 18 people a day and on weekends included and that would also include if we were open uh if we were around christmas now it would be open on christmas during that big surge and and you you got it exactly right an hour infusion and uh in an hour observation and you're done that's all you need is that one treatment and it was was it developed from some of the first people that, that got the virus and developed the antibodies and then they were able to make that in the lab or how, how did yeah. that come about? Yeah, that's right. Let me kind of simplify. So there, there, you can take plasma, you can take blood literally and take out the antibody portion from an infected person who'd had it weeks ago and use their plasma to treat. The problem is the level of antibody is going to vary person to person. So what they do instead is they isolate the B cells. We talked about those earlier, All right? that produce antibody, they clone monoclonal, they clone one of those B cells into huge numbers and they stimulate it to produce the antibody in the lab. And then they capture it and package it up and send it out. And the beauty of it is it's a known amount of antibody, high level, the same consistency, the same target uniformly. So that's why it works so well. To continue on quickly, um, remdesivir, the antiviral, works pretty well. The problem is it's five days of an infusion, which talk about difficulty. It won't work out, patient, but that's when it's needed because going back to what I said, the viral phase is early, days zero to day seven or eight. And if somebody gets sick enough to go in the hospital, they usually get remdesivir, but that might not be till day nine, 10, or 11. It's too late for the antiviral, so it only has marginal activity. Steroids, I mentioned, those are the main things that work well. The things that don't work so well, let's talk about hydroxychloroquine and plaquenil. Cheap, yep. Used widely, yep. And and the part that I think got missed is those of us in the medical field, we wanted that to work. I would have loved for that to work. Nothing I would have loved more than for that to work. In the randomized trials, it flat out didn't. And if it had any effect, it was so small that you couldn't detect it. So why put a lot of people on that when it doesn't work that well? We're, we're obliged to look at things and say, does it work or not? And the politics, you're right, clouded it all, made it so difficult. I got another 
hateful email this morning <laughs> from somebody seriously saying that you politicize us. I'm, I just want to look at the truth. I just right. want to know what works. Right. Uh, Ivermectin is another drug that's been talked about. It's a parasitic drug. You see the wide reports of anecdotal stories of it works, it works, it works. But the company that makes it, Merck, put out a statement and said, no, this doesn't work. Stop using it. The company that makes the drug said, don't use this. I mean, I don't know how much clearer more, a signal that we need. So I'll finish with this commentary. One of the casualties of this pandemic is the assassination of the trusted voice. Mm -hmm. And that set us back enormously. I don't want to even calculate the numbers of people who probably died because of all this back and forth of what works and what doesn't work. And I hope that we never have another pandemic, but I pray that if we don't have another pandemic, we avoid that political back and forth because it kills people, unfortunately. No doubt about it. I, when we come back, I'm going to ask you about some other things um, uh, that, that are used when they advise you to, if you have it, to start using that you can readily get while you're waiting maybe to get your infusion. I want to talk to you about the science, if there is any, <laughs> behind that, or it's placebo that it made me just feel better about the situation. And I don't mind placebo if it works. I don't care if it's placebo or not. That's right. Uh, fool me. Yeah, it's fool. okay. Fool me. So we'll be back more with Dr. Michael Sag when Rick and Bubba University, the podcast, continues. All right, so let's talk a little bit. And I'm hearing great stuff about Patriot Mobile. Now, they just expanded their coverage dramatically, Bubba, and it's going to make it easier for even more Americans to dump the big name carriers who charge way too much, and they may be donating and supporting. You and I talk about this on the air all the time. What do we say? Somebody calls up, I can't believe that y'all support that company with the things that they do and the things they support, and we say, well, then where's the, where's the other choice? Yeah, where, what's where, your alternative? Where can we go? Well, now it, it, there is an alternative. If you think some of these um, uh, you know, mobile companies do not represent your you know, moral view or your political view and – You'd rather be with somebody else. Patriot Mobile may be an option. Uh, and we've partnered with them because they never send a penny uh, to anything involving some of the left movements in our country and some of this push uh, that you may not uh, agree with. Uh, they'll never silence you. Uh, they're America's only Christian, conservative, wireless provider. But I know what you're saying, and I'm the same way. Do they do a good job? And the answer is yes. Um, let me tell you this. There's a, in many cases, they're using the same network as the larger providers, but they're charging you less. Switching is easy. Keep your phone number if you want. Bring your own phone, uh, or if you want to buy a new one, you can, but you're just not required to. Build your own bundle with multi-line discounts. Save even more. So why don't you do this now? Make the move to Patriot Mobile. Go to patriotmobile.com and then slash Rick Bubba, uh, or you can call their U.S.-based customer service team at 972-PATRIOT. That's 972-PATRIOT. Veterans and first responders, you save even more. Because uh, we're thankful for what you do for us um, this month, because uh, you're you're catching Rick and Bubba University free premier activation where they set up the phone for you and a special gift with the offer code Rick Bubba PatriotMobile.com slash Rick Bubba PatriotMobile.com slash Rick Bubba are called nine seven two Patriot Rick and Bubba University. We're talking with Dr. Michael Sag. He's director of Div in the division of infectious diseases at UAB. We're talking pandemic. Dr. Sag, let me ask you, since we left off, you were talking about the public trust, and I, I do think that's been a big problem in this. Uh, let me ask you this to see if I, if I fully follow this. The CDC, the Surgeon General, when all this first started, they said, don't wear a mask. 
And this this is where a lot of the public, this is what people that get on us, you're talking about your hate mail, we get oh. it too, trust me, <laughs> from all sides. They said, don't wear a mask. Then they said, wear a mask. And it seems like it was an ever-changing message. And to a lot of the public, they said, well, they're not being consistent. The the CDC folks were saying, well, it was an it was an evolution of the facts. And as we learned more, we did this. And I even saw one interview with, it wasn't the top guy from the past administration. It was one of the underlings that said, look, we simply told people not to wear masks because we knew there was going to be a shortage and we wanted healthcare workers to have them first until we could catch up. But they were not honest with the public. And when they did that, they lost the trust of the public. Now they don't believe them when they say you need to wear a mask. Yeah, it's, it's a fundamental problem with science. Um, and with let's take all the politics aside. We learn as we go. And that's, to me, why brutal honesty is critical, because we're not going to get it right every time. So here's what happened. Um, based on the prior coronaviruses, um, they were viewed as different than influenza. And most of the transmission of SARS-1 happened in hospitals. It didn't happen in the community. 45 to 50% of people who got the first SARS infection back in 2003 were healthcare workers. And there were hardly any community spread. So that was the first background. And the second thing was that the, the thought was that it was droplets that it go on surfaces. So in my case, I listened. I, I was in the car with my son and we didn't wear masks. He wasn't sick at the time. We wiped everything down. All right. It 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 wasn't effective. So as we learn, we're obliged to say, okay, mm-hmm. now we know that they they do work, and they do work extraordinarily well. We know right now that the number one cause of transmission is from uh, air coming out of an infected person, somebody breathing. I like to use the analogy of of pig pen. Yeah. Remember that guy? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That cloud around him? Yeah. Well, that's somebody who's infected with coronavirus. And sadly, they can be infected for about 24 hours before they get symptoms, and they're spewing enormous amounts of virus into like a one to three foot, sorry, three to six foot radius around them. And if they're screaming or cheering or singing, it can be out to 10 feet. The mask blocks that, not a hundred percent but blocks it a lot. And if you now wear these double masks, which is the newest thing, right? Um, it blocks it over 90%. So it, it protects the individual who's around that person just by the person who has the infection wearing the mask. And it also protects the, that person, the person who might be exposed. So we know they work now. You're right. Uh, I, I think the only way that we could have done this better the way we for sure could have done it better is for somebody, the trusted voice to say, we got this wrong. Here is what we know. Here's what we thought. And here's what we know now. And if people are just honest about that, I think the trust would follow. Yeah, I do too. Always clarify. And on that topic too, lockdowns, we're seeing data now uh, that lockdowns, say California versus Florida, their numbers look very similar. Uh, one has had its economy damaged, one has not. What is your feeling? Is that accurate? Uh, is I think the science, as you said, indicates mask help. I don't like wearing a mask. I don't like being told I got to wear a mask. 
but I think it absolutely helps. I even tell people, Doc, I said, this goes back to your mom when you're a little kid. She's told you to do what when you coughed? Cover your mouth. Cover well, your why? Mouth. So you wouldn't spread germs. Right. I, I think it's just that. I didn't need a lab to tell me that. Yes. What about the lockdowns? Is that wise? Is it not? What are you seeing in that? Yeah, I think before you answer, we need to ask, add one caveat too. Florida, it's not like they didn't do anything. Right. They did the social distancing. They did the cut down on how many people could be there. They just didn't shut their economy all the way down. So, so what say you? Uh, I think we got the wrong comparisons here. What we should compare is the United States versus any Asian country. So pick Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, they're back to almost normal now, but they had lockdowns. And so what do we, what did we do wrong? The, the lockdowns work, but you can't just do it in isolation. You got to have support for the businesses that get hurt. You can't just say to hell with your business or to hell with um, people's jobs that they're in the service industry and they're getting tips and whatnot at restaurants. You can't just tell them, Oh, sorry, we're going into lockdown. You've got to have the relief packages paired up. You need a strategic global type of response if you're going to employ a lockdown. Is it absolutely necessary? Not necessarily. It just would be more effective than just simply mask wearing. But we did both poorly, right? We didn't right. lock down well, and we didn't, we didn't wear masks well, and we got clobbered. And so now we're coming out of it. I think those are the lessons learned. Why are the Asian rim countries? Because they went through SARS-1. They went through it originally, and they learned the mistakes. And Taiwan in particular, they hardly had any cases. Go look at the numbers on the websites, and you'll see U.S. or Europe, mm -hmm. um, and then you'll see Asian countries down here because they learn from their mistakes. And I think we would have learned from this as well. My, my final point, it gets back to politics. And we found ourselves battling over simple things like masks. And as you said, Bubba, mom, mama told us to cover our mouth. <laughs> right. Yeah, that makes sense. It's common sense. So we just have to pull together. And the final point, I'm sorry, is that we can't let every state do it differently. We need to have a national strategy that we all buy into, and that'll protect us the most over time. All right, Dr. Sag, we have three minutes. I would like, and I, I was going to ask you about these other little things you take when you have it, but we really don't have time for that because I think this is more important. And because you've told us the things that are effective as far as treatment, and that's the most important thing. Get, get to those things as quick as you can once you've been diagnosed. But do you have good news for us today? Are things getting better? You, you have the floor. Yes, I do. I, I, I'm so, um, I'm so excited about the vaccine. Um, uh, it's our it's our rescue for those of us who studied Greek tragedies in in high school or right. college or whatever. Um, that's where you get rescued by the gods at the end by this thing called Deus Ex Machina. It pulls a protagonist out of the bad situation. That is it. Imagine our world if those vaccines had failed, and they could have. They could have failed. What? Where would we be right now if we didn't have the vaccines? That is our exit ramp. That gets us off this horrible superhighway. And so what I think we're going to see, Rick, is that we're going to see the vaccines rolling out. They're not going out as fast as we want them. But give it a couple of months, and by the summertime, we will have a lot of people vaccinated such that by the fall, we'll get back to football the way that we know it, I think. Christmas and, and Thanksgiving will be close to normal. But it's going to take all of us in this next three to four months 
doing all the things we know to do, wearing masks, protecting our community, our neighbors next door, do, being good citizens and doing that, getting our vaccine when it becomes available. And I think we'll get out of this. Yeah, you were talking about we got one minute left. What, what can we do in our home state? It seems like we're having a hard time getting the vaccines out at the rate we all prefer. What's the problem? The problem is just simply production. And again, I'll credit the last administration, the Trump administration, for getting this started, that they realized that the normal process of drug development is you get the study done and you get it worked and then you scale up the factories. Right. We'd still be in a one or two year scale up if we did it the normal way. But the Trump administration invested, told Pfizer and Moderna, here's a billion plus dollars, build your factories now in this, in last summer so that at least as the vaccines, if they worked, we'd have them available. Well, we do. It's just not quite enough. These things are hard to produce. So they're gonna keep scaling up and we're gonna keep using them I think the supply will increase dramatically over the next three to four months, and we'll get out of this. Thank, thank you, Doctor. You, thank you. You've been a, a lot with a lot of information today. Yeah, thanks for taking time to be with us, too. Dr. Uh, Michael Sag, uh, Director of Division of Infectious Disease at UAB, and uh, thank you for being on Rick and Bubba University, and thanks to all of you for participating and listening and or watching this edition of Rick and Bubba University, the podcast. <laughs>